You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of SD Times. And now, here's Jacob Lukowitz, online and social media editor at SD Times. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about how data management emerged as a profound unsung hero during the COVID pandemic. With me today is Richard Young, Vice President of Vault CDMS with Viva Systems. Great to have you here, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to have a chance to speak to you. Great. So to start off, uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about how has data management changed into a focal point for organizations during COVID? Absolutely. It's a great question. I think um, you know, data management has been performed in a fairly normal way, probably since the first recognized clinical trials, you know, halfway through the last century. It's very much been about capturing data when patients experience events and using that data to make decisions. And, you know, that has a certain cadence and pace to it. Well, as much as we have spent the last 10 years in particular trying to be faster and better, there's nothing like an event like COVID to sharpen that thinking to the next degree. Um, Because making things a little bit better, a few percentage points better, was no longer an option under the COVID uh, pandemic, and you think about those early days in 2020, it was all here and now. People were making real life and death decisions every day, every few hours, and you do that based on actual data. You know, we were working on a whole host of different treatment options, scrambling to learn information, to be able to document just the, the basic nature of the COVID infection. Mm-hmm. And so I think data management suddenly goes from being a an afterthought in the clinical trial process to being front and center of that. Because now data management was responsible not only for gathering that data and putting it into a format that's presentable, but putting in a format where the data is reliable and where that data can be used for decisions with great confidence. You're also trying to find a way to deliver trials of quite novel design and allowing the scientists who wanted to expedite and accelerate research using clever designs, how do you implement those new designs? This is going beyond the technologies we've been using for the last decade or so. We also saw an era where people were a lot more available uh, and amenable to taking risks, doing things they hadn't done before. And one of the things you keep coming back to is, okay, we're going to do one thing, we're going to do another. But the data that's generated, it still stands the test of regulatory scrutiny. And so as data managers, you also had to be a little bit of a gatekeeper and make sure that what we were doing was valid and trustworthy. Because what we knew, above all other things in that pandemic, we were handling the data that would change the lives of as many of us forever. I mean, there's not many of us left who can say they didn't have COVID at one time or another. And right. you know, the reality is no people who've had COVID and been badly affected by it the data we were generating was absolutely going to lead to the solution. And so data management was really thrust into the limelight of mm-hmm. those activities. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a bit about what, what kinds of data were you know most useful to reaching those uh, scientific breakthroughs? Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, there's an old adage about clinical trials that you only have to answer two questions. The first one is, does it work? And the second is, did it hurt? And if you answer those two questions, you know whether the treatment you're, you're testing is going to be a, an appropriate treatment for, for wider use. And there's an element of truth about that for, for COVID. I mean, the first thing is, 
does it work? Does it actually help patients? Either uh, as a preventative or as a curative or just to reduce symptoms? Because remember, in those early days, it was about reducing symptoms. It was about understanding the symptoms patients were experiencing. So the data we were gathering was really to look at the whole patient, to understand were we actually seeing patients who had been infected, had been infected before? Um, were we seeing patients who hadn't actually been treated, uh, sorry, hadn't been infected and perhaps merely had a cold or some other common infection? So really making sure we had the right patients, making sure they were treated in the right way, that they followed the treatment protocol. But then looking at all the available data, looking at their laboratory data, looking at any imaging data or any biomarker data we're taking, looking at something called immunogenicity, looking at their reaction to the treatment they were taking, was really one of the major things was, you know, taking six years of research and collapsing it into one year, you're looking for every possible learning opportunity. So it's all very well developing a treatment that we could prevent or actually cure you of the COVID-19 pandemic. But that's not really helpful if I develop, deliver a treatment that would be more harmful to you in a shorter period of time. And so really what we were looking at was not just the short-term benefits, but the longer-term security and safety that we, as far as we could, uh, mm -hmm. the treatments provided. And that, you obviously don't have the long-term data at that point. What you do have is enough data to act as surrogate markers. Are we seeing your body react to these treatments? Are we seeing laboratory values change significantly? Are we seeing patterns of ill health caused by patients taking these experimental treatments? And, you know, you saw some uh, companies' attempts to deliver a solution fail, and they no longer were taken forward. And you saw others come to the fore and mm -hmm. become the solutions we're so familiar with today. Mm -hmm. So did you find that at the outset of the pandemic, um, gathering all these data from different sources was um, was difficult because there were data silos in some places. I imagine that uh, you know in the United States with so many private options that are prominent and and not as much of like a comprehensive uniform public health or should I say industry. That I imagine the data is all in these different places. Did you find that that was the case? Uh, certainly, in some cases, I, 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 the best way I describe it, Jacob, is I think about a clinical trial of solving a Rubik's cube. Mm -hmm. And I should say, by the way, I've never successfully solved the Rubik's Cube myself. Um, mm -hmm. But I think of it as a Rubik's Cube because if you consider one side of that Rubik's Cube as a patient, one as a site, one as data management, one as clinical regulators, you know, it's moving pieces. And every piece that we move has an impact on someone else. Mm -hmm. And the reason I like the analogy of Rubik's Cube is because no matter where you stand in relationship to your Rubik's Cube, you can only ever see three sides of that Rubik's Cube. Mm. And certain changes are made either by you or someone else. Sometimes you know the change. Sometimes you're familiar with the change. Sometimes it's only something you'll discover later. But there are changes upon changes. And COVID was creating an environment where lots of people were trying to change that Rubik's Cube, always for the better. But sometimes one group or another would take a hit. You would do something slightly less effectively to allow other groups to move more rapidly. And I think if you continue that analogy, you think about we were gathering data in ways that perhaps we hadn't used before. Because remember, COVID locked down clinical research centers. It wasn't safe for patients and volunteers to often travel to hospitals to receive experimental treatments. Mm -hmm. It was all being done in a very controlled way. 
I will say, if you look at the response to people who volunteered, it was incredible. People were clearly very generous with their time, and there was a, a very holistic um, and unified effort to volunteer to find treatments. But research itself was challenged to be even the most fundamental levels. So getting people into trials, monitoring them, managing them through required new technology sets. It required gathering data, simple blood samples. Where how would you do that? Would you do it at home? Did you bring them into the hospital? And all of these situations were different. And every country, every center and hospital involved had a different approach. Mm-hmm. And some of that was governed by local laws and local regulations. You know, some of the biggest studies and explored 60, 70,000 patients. Well, where do I find 60 or 70,000 patients? If I go to one super site in one country, um, then I need to think through the logistics of how I funnel all those people through one centre. Mm-hmm. If we go to multiple centres, it extends the time to set that study up. You face more local regulatory challenges. So that every study had to be uniquely considered. And with it, how are you going to gather and manage all of that data? I think we saw data management rise to that challenge by implementing new technologies, looking at data sets together, and really challenging what's about to come next. Thinking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, applying different technologies to your data to find not necessarily the most complicated of conclusions, sometimes quite simple, but doing it really quickly and effectively doing it in a way where you could quantify the risk and the confidence. You know, mm-hmm. Perhaps you haven't got all of the data points, but I've got mm-hmm. enough to say with 75, 80% confidence, this is the result. And in some cases, medically, it was concluded that was enough to move forward. You still keep waiting for the rest of the data. You still verify, mm-hmm. um, but you can look at a subset of the data and make a determination. And under the, the pandemic, I think that was a, a valid and justifiable risk-based approach. But you needed new technology to pull all of that data together so mm. you could view it on data and make a patient-level decision. I see. That's very interesting. Now, did you find that a lot of those technologies were in place uh, once the pandemic started happening, or did it you know, require a rapid evolution? I think there's a mixture. There are some technologies you know, that were available and perhaps were being underutilized in the farm mm. industry. The farm industry is incredibly conservative for good reason. Your health is at stake, so we are always going to be very conservative. But there are also technologies that are being used in other areas, insurance, motoring, and so on, where they use artificial intelligence algorithms to run those algorithms here and also run in parallel and more standard way to back up and verify your decisions was sensible. So we saw the acceleration of some technology. We also saw some real gaps. And I can I can mention Viva's response as one. You know, yeah, that'd be great. People could not physically visit clinical sites. This means that when you're trying to keep trials running, and think about not just the COVID trials, but all the oncology trials, all the diabetes trials that suddenly couldn't run because patients couldn't visit those medical institutions. Now, we're not able to remotely monitor those visits, the things that had happened, because we couldn't send staff to the site to verify things were happening to resupply the site. So one of the things Viva did was, was accelerate a piece of technology called SiteVault, where we just actually gave each and every site its own vault, its own technological collaboration area, if you like, where people could exchange documents. Sounds like a really simple thing to do. 
but actually to do it in a secure, controlled way where you can collaborate with a site, you can view what's going on, you can make patient safety determinations as you need to. And we gave that away for free. We gave other technologies away for free to help as well. And other companies responded likewise. It was about the acceleration of some applications. And with that acceleration, I think it's important to recognize you, you, you realize that perfection didn't need to be the enemy of the good. The product I mentioned, the disciple, it wasn't perfect. We hadn't planned to release it. There were some features we would have always wanted to add mm-hmm. and have gone on to add, but that didn't matter. At that time, there was a physical use case. People needed to be able to talk to sites and visit them remotely and virtually, and this application allowed them to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think you saw that that recognition that not every decision we make needs to be absolutely perfect. The situation doesn't warrant perfection in every case, um, and you could assess the risk. In this case, it was very low risk, but very high value to be able to see what people are physically doing and to mm-hmm. exchange information, that's what we facilitated. Small part of the puzzle, but it's another piece of that Rubik's Cube that needed to be solved in order to meet the regulatory scrutiny, to meet the standards to which we hold ourselves so highly to regard. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, I know you mentioned that um, you know there was the difficulties with getting people into the sites and there are already you know, regulatory um, hurdles as well sometimes. So... What are there any other big challenges in implementing a, an effective data management strategy within the health industry? Perhaps, I, I think so. I think there's a lot of a lot of companies looking at their overall data strategy. I think you know, 15 years ago, data management was perhaps seen as a, a second class citizen in the, the clinical trial process. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who was a data manager. That's what I do today. I still very much build and support technology strategies. Today, and I don't think COVID caused it, I think COVID accelerated this thinking, is that more and more focus is on the data we are generating. You know, if you look at just us in our everyday healthy lives, you know, I'm wearing an Apple Watch. We're all wearing some sort of Fitbit or Mm -hmm. connected in some way to various multiple data sources. You know, I live by this idea of 10,000 steps a day. I actually let technology govern the part of my life. That's the same in clinical trials. We're trying to develop treatments that work in a real world. They're designed to operate in your normal, everyday life, not an extension or variation of that. And I think as data management, or data managers, I should say, we're trying to transform ourselves to recognize that because now we're dealing with 10, 20, 30 data sources, not one or two. We're dealing with billions of data points, not hundreds. We are talking about that type of seismic shift. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I think you have to just realize we're not data managers anymore. We are, and this is a bit of a play on words, but we're managers of data, but also managers of the strategy around that data. And actually part of our job is connecting that operational concept to the science that's at the heart of clinical research. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I... I think where we're moving towards is away from data management to something called data science. And I was just at the Society of Clinical Data Management Conference last week where this was the main subject. We talked about the whole idea of moving to data science, and not maybe a traditional data science model, but a clinical data science model where we will look at the interrelation between every data point. Mm-hmm. They're not all born in, 
but there are certain relationships that will rise to the top and they will govern how we approach clinical research going forward. And it's the data scientists who will spot those relationships, will identify them and will surface them up for the medics, um, the scientists to, to explore and to interpret and in turn design even better clinical trials going forward, which will accelerate treatments for us all. That journey away from data management to data science is, is a difficult one. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the challenge that they over the next few years. And technology will play its part, but so will people and so will process. And mm-hmm. when you have to change all three, that's hard. And that's really mm-hmm. where we are today. I see. So I imagine there are going to be a lot of uh, a lot of openings for data science if there aren't already. I, I think we, we talked about this at the conference last week. I have to say, this is an exciting time to be a data data manager or a data scientist, whichever phrase you want to go with. Um, there is more data. There are more clinical trials. You know, this is a great time to be getting involved in clinical trials and coming into the world of clinical data, because classic traditional linear thinking is, mm-hmm. is going to be a thing. This is where we need new ideas, new implementation methods, uh, new concepts of how to explore data. Think of it in multiple dimensions rather than in single dimensions. And these are new skills that we need to bring into our industry. And technology has to learn to both drive that demand as well as meet it and supply it, mm-hmm. which makes again an incredibly exciting time to be part of this transformation. Yeah. So for all the listeners that are good with numbers, that's a great point to take away. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, I would uh, I would definitely be considering a career in clinical data management if I was there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all the questions I had. Are there any other key takeaways that you'd like to for listeners to have um, as to whether you know how data management is becoming more important or how to manage data sprawl? I think you know the main thing I would say, just in the little time we have left, is is part of the job of clinical data management and data science is also to to get away from this idea of single use data. You know, we used to collect data for a clinical trial, use it, and kind of park that data, preserve it. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to reuse it. We're trying to make sure we're making better and better decisions with every clinical trial that we run. Just that, you know, patients who are facing real-time, life-threatening dilemmas aren't being subject to trials that are really just confirming something we should already know. And it's not ethical. It's not appropriate. So reusing that data is going to be a, an art, a science in its own. And that's going to be a big driver, but also integrating uh, Fitbits, and, uh, Apple Watches, and other devices into the normal day treatment of clinical trials. Things you feel really comfortable wearing, things that will give you instant feedback as to whether or not this treatment is working for you. Now, that level of knowledge can have implications on the trial design. And that's things that, again, we will have to explore and make sure we can right size. But again, this is just great time to be involved in all of these things because we make clinical trials better faster we get confident we get to more confident decisions this is good for everyone for you yeah. for me for all the patients out there um, because it means we're accelerating good quality research that's the number one goal great well it looks like that's all the time we have for today's show and i want to thank you again for coming on and providing your insight thank you for having me thank you very much for listening And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Be sure to check out all of our weekly episodes on your favorite podcast listening platform. Till next time, this has been What the Dev. 